This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. It's been a busy few years for Representative Madeline Dean, the Pennsylvania Democrat elected to the House in 2018. The lawyer and professor was part of a historic wave of women elected who put the chamber back in Democratic control. She's written a book with her son about his opioid addiction. She served as an impeachment manager for the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump. And she's now being mentioned as a possible Senate contender for the seat that retiring Republican Pat Toomey is vacating in 2022. We're going to be talking to Jim Saxa and Bridget Bowman, both about uh, Congresswoman Dean, her book, uh, and Pennsylvania politics. Uh, we're going to start uh, with Jim. Uh, Jim, you talked to Dean and her son, Harry, about their new book, Under Our Roof. And before we throw to your interview, it's worth noting that unlike many politicians, she probably actually wrote the book because she's a professor, a writing professor, right? Yeah, they actually started writing for Congress. So I, I believe those words are hers and her son's. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, and you get, you get into some of the, the particulars in your, in your interview uh, with, uh, with the Congresswoman and her son, Harry, uh, about like how they structured the book and so forth. So we'll go to that uh, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more about uh, uh, what her future may portend. So why did you guys decide to write this book? Mary, you want to start? Sure. Uh, so to be perfectly honest, originally it was not not our idea. Uh, my older brother, Pat, was a writer. He had written a book. And when his agent approached him looking for, you know, see if, see if he had an idea for a second book, he said no and said, I don't, but, you know, maybe my mom and my brother have a story to tell. Um, so he told us that and, you know, we had thought about it and, met with the agent, and here we are a couple years later. What are you hoping people will take away after reading this book? I think our initial idea is we want to try to help somebody. Um, For us to shine a light on this issue that is so common for so many many people, so many families, um, to expose it, the ugliness of it, the joys on the other side through recovery, Um, And really to try to shine a light on hope, you know, that there is hope. Jim, every time we met with the, our agent or the editor uh, or the publisher, that's what we just kept saying. If we write this book and we can help somebody, it will have been worth it. One of the things that really struck me about this book is its structure. It's written almost as a dialectic, uh, switching between the two of you, going back and forth. And it's part a cautionary tale about addiction and part uh, a political memoir. How did you guys uh, decide to structure it in this way? Well, you know, uh, when uh, my eldest son, Pat, came to us with the idea, we sort of quickly came up with the idea that we should have separate voices. I remember thinking, if I have to write half this book, I, I want to not know what Harry's written because I want to live my memories and not have them colored by what he was experiencing. And so literally very quickly in our first meeting, we said, we'd like to write 
in our own voices, even chose the idea of having separate fonts. Uh, so the fonts would reflect voice. Uh, and then literally we created an outline together. Uh, and uh, went our separate ways in terms of the writing, we put the first half of the book together. That's the first time I read really uh, much of Harry's memories. Uh, and same for you. you. You had to wait to see mine also. But that's the way we structured it. And then the editor dovetailed our stories together. And when you guys did go back and read what the other had written, was there anything that like shocked you or surprised you? Um, you know, how did you react? Oh boy. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I thought I had some idea of what we had been through, what Harry had been through, but um, in, in reading Harry's side of the story, it was, there were such moments of heartbreak, things I had no idea about. So yes, it was, it was eye opening. The, the original structure, I remember one of the hardest chapters to read was Harry's chapter five. It's no longer chapter five. I don't remember what chapter it is now, but I kept saying to Harry and to Pat, I said, I can't even get through his chapter five. It's it's so heartbreaking. You know, Representative, you described throughout the book how hard it was to come to understand what Harry was going through. And, you know, even after you went through it, writing it sounds like you it was difficult. And, and you know, I cannot think of any other book I've uh, read where one of the authors uh, called herself ignorant as many times as you did. Um, and that's all the more remarkable given that this is partially a political memoir. Usually you brag in those. So, so <laughs> tell me, why was that so important uh, for you to do that? Well, uh, Jim, I, I'd love it if you call me mad or Madeline. Uh, <laughs> that's funny. I, I didn't really recognize that, except maybe that just reveals what we both had the goal of, which was just to be honest. Um, it, we thought if in the writing, if I'm honest about what I was going through, my stumbles, uh, my blind spots, uh, my struggles, um, but also my tenacious love for Harry, uh, that maybe somebody would see themselves uh, in, in us and in the hope that is uh, recovery and, and Harry's doing so well. So I have to admit to you that um, I just thought if I don't tell the story honestly, it will come off like some sort of a patina, and that won't help anybody. Yeah, and another thing I noticed that like this book is empathy heavy. I guess is a way of putting it. Um, a lot of political memoirs uh, they weave in with all the anecdotes, uh, basically policy arguments. But <laughs> this is pretty light on statistics, and to the extent that you guys are making an argument about opioid uh, uh, policies or uh, prison reform or anything like that. It, it's very implicit. Um, so why did you guys decide to do that? I imagine it was a conscious decision. You know, initially we wanted the book to be what it is and not to try to do too much with it, not to, you know, make it a memoir about our family's journey through a substance use disorder and recovery and also a, you know, more political piece and also something else. I mean, um, when we were talking initially with our agent, you know, he had sort of summed it up in, in a lot of ways. It's just, it's a mother and son love story. And, you know, so we really wanted to focus on our experience, our family's experience. Um, she has, my mom has a wonderful opportunity in her work to, to focus on a lot of those other issues and be able to talk to the statistics and the different reforms and policies and 
laws that could be put in place to impact them. Um, but we wanted to really focus on what we had been through. We wanted to make it a personal memoir, but of course we've been the fact um, of, of my own work originally as a state representative and, and now in Congress. Um, you know, speaking of statistics, uh, one of the reasons why we're very glad you're, you're covering this is uh, this is an epidemic. Uh, a 12-month measure during this pandemic uh, of the um, opioid uh, overdose crisis, 81,000 people died in 12 months. I call that a jetliner a day. 200, on average, 222 people die every year in this country. Uh, we just saw in the recent news the, the grounding of the 777 because of that horrendous uh, fire in the engine. Uh, fortunately, no one injured. Um, we, but we ground planes when we find that they are potentially deadly. In our country, a jetliner of souls a day is dying from addiction. Uh, so that's the, the largest policy statement I'll say. What are we going to do as a society to deal with that and to reduce that number down to zero? Yeah, and something that you guys sort of touch upon in the book is this idea that addiction is a a moral failing. Uh, at least that's the the stigma that's attached to it. And, and you guys really try to push back in that stigma, right? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. That's one of our goals: stop the stigma. Yeah, I mean, from my experience, a uh, big factor that held me back from asking for help sooner. Um, and I think, you know, I, the, the stigma goes not just on the person who's struggling with it, but with the family members. And you can see that through my mom's writing. Um, but there's so many people that are suffering from this in silence because a lot of society does judge it as a moral failing or as, you know, bad people. Um, we saw it come up in the most recent election cycle and, when it's put out in that way on such a large scale, it just makes it harder for people to ask for help. So we wanted to, through the book, under our roof, really show both sides. Um, and something that we were cognizant of was a lot of what's out there right now, you know, in other books or other stories that are told, really go entirely focused on the act of addiction. Um, and sort of end at recovery. So we really wanted to break the book up and show what recovery looks like. Um, you know, that it's not easy, that it's a process, it's a journey. Um, but the joys that are possible through it are really remarkable. Um, and I don't think you can fully appreciate and understand just how joyous it can be without seeing the uglier side of it. Part of what's interesting about this book is you know, it does offer a glimpse about what it's like being a politician's kid. Um, so, Harry, I got to ask, uh, what was it like seeing your mom uh, managing the impeachment uh, just, what, two weeks ago? It, it was really unbelievable. Um, surreal. There's a lot of words I could try to throw at it. Um, but more than anything, I mean, for me, for my brothers um, and all of us, the number one thing I can think of is just how proud we are to see. I mean, it's been remarkable to watch, um, you know, my mom sort of having a platform and being visible, um, highlighting all the things that we've seen in her and known about her for so long. Um, you know, we've had the confidence in her, but just to watch it, to be a part of history, 
um, and to be fighting for what's right. We, we could not be more proud of her. You guys both uh, wrote in this about uh, the idea of timing and things not being the right time. Congressman, you wrote, you know, that when the boys were young, I remember worrying that running for office would somehow steal their mother from them. And Harry, you wrote about how there was never the right time to confront your addiction. And uh, I want to ask both of you, you know, what do you, what would you tell your younger selves or someone who might be listening to this or might read the book who might find themselves in a situation similar to what you guys were going through? From my experience, if I could tell myself something earlier, it would be, you know, do it now. Um, ask for help now as soon as you possibly can. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, concepts of rock bottom and does somebody need to hit rock bottom? And, um, you know, I don't necessarily like that idea or that notion. You know, I've found there's always, the longer you go, um, the bottom just keeps getting lower. Um, you know, and in many cases, sadly, a lot of people die. Um, so there is no good time to ask for help. There's always going to be some event, some holiday, something coming up that, you know, you think you might not want to miss if you go get treatment or whatever the case may be. Um, but there's no better time to ask than right now. I couldn't agree more on the timing of asking for help. And I learned from Harry that, you know, we, we wrote in the book about the car ride to treatment. It was a very quiet car ride with PJ driving and me in the front seat and Harry in the back. And we broke the car ride by just saying, Harry, did you ever think of asking us for help? And he said, it just never felt like a good time. And, you know, whether it was a holiday or PJ traveling or me running for something or whatever it was, somebody sick in the family. Uh, and his, I thought his expression was exactly right. There is no good time. So ask for help as soon as you recognize you need it or maybe even a little before. You might say, I'm not sure if I'm in trouble, um, but ask for help. You'd just be amazed at who wants to lend a hand. In terms of asking, there's something that you attributed in the book to Ed Rendell about uh, you never know if you don't ask. So, Representative, I, I have to ask. There is an open Senate seat, uh, and one of your sons, you mentioned him already, Pat, uh, noted how comfortable you looked in the Senate during impeachment. Uh, are are you going to run for it? Oh, that's very kind of you to ask, Jim. Uh, I have to, if you don't mind, just reflecting. Do you believe it's only been nine or ten days since the impeachment verdict came down? And I have to tell you, from my experience, I'm a relatively new member of Congress. Think of the honor of getting to be among that team of impeachment managers, so ably led by Jamie Raskin. Uh, the man of great heart and intellect, uh, who I just think did brought the country a gift through the prosecution of the case. So I keep thinking of the work I get to do in Congress uh, on Financial Services Committee, on Judiciary Committee, now as a sophomore member. I love my work. So while it's flattering to be um, talked about for the open to me seat to come in 2022, but right now, I'm going to keep my head down, keep doing my work, serving the people of the 4th Congressional District, because I love it. Thank you both for joining us today. Jim, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you.
If you or someone you know may be struggling with addiction, you can find help from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. You can find them online at samhsa.gov or call 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357. So let's let's talk. I mean, you know, I, I, I just, I'm kind of fascinated, you know, with the, you know, the writers who become politicians, politicians who become writers. I mean, she is a politician, of course. She was in the Pennsylvania House before she came to Congress for, uh, she was first elected in 2012. Um, I mean, you, you all talked about like whether the opioid addiction of her son would ever come into the, you know, the, the equation of being used against her. I thought she'd sort of dispatched that pretty well and saying like, that says a lot more about the opponent. Uh, and I'm just, it's just, I'm not going to hide it from anybody. Um, but this book, uh, you know, she wrote this before ever being, you know, an impeachment manager and, and so forth. Uh, the, these things take a long time, but Jim, this thing sounds like I haven't, I haven't read the book, you know, you, you, you have like, this is something you write outside of campaign considerations. This feels a very, like a very personal book and not a political one. Yeah. And it definitely reads that way. Uh, you know, political books would be talking about, uh, you know, how this is a national, uh, scourge uh, the opioid uh, crisis and would be offering uh, policy prescriptions. And it really doesn't do that. It's, as they said, uh, it's really a, a love story about, you know, uh, between, you know, a mother and a son and, and their bond. Um, but what I think is really interesting is that that honesty could have a political upside to it. Um, we're a long way away from you know, Betty Ford hiding her addiction while, uh, um, you know, Gerald Ford was in office. Uh, we're, we're, we've gotten to a point where so many people have been affected uh, either directly or indirectly by addiction. And we're, we're starting to understand that it's not a moral failing so much as a disease that uh, being honest and open about this uh, could, you know, really benefit her if she decided to, you know, I don't run for a statewide office in Pennsylvania, which is a state that's been hard hit by the opioid crisis. And Bridget, you've uh, you've reported on the Pennsylvania Senate race that's developing. Uh, Pat Toomey, the uh, Republican incumbent, is retiring in 2022, so that's created this scramble, as open seats often do, especially in swing states, or sorry, swing commonwealths uh, like <laughs> Pennsylvania. Good catch, good catch. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but let, let's talk about where where that Senate race is and where Dean sort of fits into it. Yeah, so I think the question for Pennsylvania for both parties in this race is more so who isn't thinking about running. <laughs> uh, the list of possible candidates in both parties is very long. Um, it's even, it potentially could be longer on the Democratic side because there's also, as a reminder, a governor's race in Pennsylvania, and the state attorney general is likely, Democrats I've talked to have said he's likely to run for governor and likely to clear the field for governor. So any ambitious Democrat is really probably looking more at the Senate race. Um, so there are a couple Democrats already running. Uh, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, who's from the western part of the state um, outside of Pittsburgh, and uh, State Representative Malcolm Kenyatta, who's from the Philly area, Philadelphia area. Uh, there's a state senator in Philadelphia who said he wants to launch an exploratory committee. And there's, again, another long list of people who are said to be considering it, including a number of members of the House. 
um, including Congresswoman Dean. It sounds like she is more thinking about it because her allies in Pennsylvania, her friends have encouraged her to think about it. I talked to a couple of folks who she worked with in the state house who said that they've encouraged her to at least think about it. Um, but the primary is a long way away. It's not until June, 2022. So there's a lot of time for this field to take shape. And Jim, uh, in, in a, in a previous life, uh, you were at, uh, WHYY, uh, the, uh, the Philadelphia public radio station, you were a reporter there, uh, covered, you know, local issues, transit issues and so forth, but also did a lot of, uh, you know, kind of hopping around the, the, the area, Philadelphia area. Tell us about where she's from, about uh, Montgomery County and how that fits into this sort of political calculus that uh, the Bridget sort of alluded to with like the West and East part of the states. Yeah, well, Monco's been... Uh, Sorry, Commonwealth, Commonwealth. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Monco's been really a hotbed of uh, Pennsylvania politics the last couple of years. Uh, Bridget just mentioned the Attorney General, Josh Pirro, who uh, was a state rep there. Actually, his dean uh, took his seat when he uh, joined the Monco commissioners. Another Monco commissioner right now, Val Arkush, is thinking about the Senate run as well. Um, uh, and Shapiro is the, the favorite on the Democratic side, I think, right now to uh, be the governor. Um, and uh, it's it's an area, you know, it abuts Philadelphia. Most people from Monco will will tell outsiders that they're from Philly. Um, and uh, that means that most of Dean's political connections uh, come from the area. And there's also an area that until very recently, like so many other suburbs, was being contested really hard by the Republican Party. And now uh, it is you know, completely a, a safe seat for, for Democrats. Um, whether that will con- remain the case with a, with Pennsylvania uh, uh, up to lose a House seat uh, because of uh, reapportionment and uh, there'll have to be a redrawing of the districts, we'll see. Um, but, um, you know, she would be yet another person from the eastern part of the state, uh, Fetterman comes from the west, but he also has some really good connections in Philadelphia itself, which is an extremely liberal city. It cannot be um, uh, discounted at all. Um, the the third district, which is West Philly and Cent- uh, Center City, uh, is the third most uh, uh, liberal or left-leaning district in the U.S. right now. Um, and so Fetterman, uh, who's a Democratic socialist, has a lot of inroads there. Um, and Dean is another progressive uh, with Kenyatta uh, already in there. And uh, Fetterman would uh, really load up on the um, progressives, uh, load up on the eastern part of the state, and would leave an opening for a more moderate uh, uh, candidate, which maybe Chrissy Houlihan, who's also from the Philly Burbs, a little bit further out though, Chester County, or someone like Connor Lamb, uh, who represents uh, the Pittsburgh suburbs. And and Bridget, like that, that actually brings up a, a good point about uh, Lamb in particular, because you know we we don't know what's going to happen with apportionment. We don't even know when the census is actually coming out <laughs> at at this point, but. Uh, if if history is a guide, Phil, uh, Pennsylvania will likely lose a seat and they'll redraw them. Um, Lamb seems to be one of the people who stands to lose the most or be drawn into a more uh, precarious political position, which would 
possibly prompt him to say, like, I might as well take my chances in the Senate, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, He has said, too, that he's considering running. Um, Democrats in the state who I talked to when talking about Congresswoman Dean suggested either Lamb or maybe Congresswoman Houlihan, who Jim mentioned, uh, could face the most trouble in a redistricting situation. They don't expect Dean herself to be drawn into a new district that's unwinnable, um, which also might be part of her calculation. Um, Instead of jumping into a Senate primary, she could lose, maybe stay in a House district that's favorable to Democrats. Um, The other thing when thinking about these House members who are all looking at a Senate race, redistricting is a factor. They also have time, a little more time than like a state or local uh, representative might because of kind of a wonky way campaign finance works. So because their House campaign finance account is a federal account, they can easily transfer that to a Senate race. They can continue to raise money for their House race and transfer that whenever they want to. But you can't do that for a state or local representative. So we see Lieutenant Governor Fetterman jumping in, raising some big money early uh, to try to get that financial advantage because, you know, if he waited too long, he might not be able to raise as much. Um, So that's another kind of thing to keep in mind. Um, And the other interesting thing, uh, Jim also mentioned Valor Kush, is that Pennsylvania has never had a woman senator. So that could be another calculation. Do we see Emily's list get really involved in this primary? And that's just unclear because the field is so unsettled. Um, But running statewide statewide is also not a foreign concept for Congresswoman Dean. She was running for lieutenant governor before the lines were redrawn in 2018, and she decided to run for Congress instead. So I think she's still one to watch. But yeah, the field is very, very broad and could include Congressman Lamb, too. Right. And and there there are there's a compelling reason for her to possibly stay in the house beyond just that it's a, may, might be a safer uh a, a race to run in which you allude to in a story that you wrote recently Bridget which is that um you know the 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 senior leaders in the house and among democrats are 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 probably not that far away from retiring she's relatively young. That's right. And she has an even higher profile now with her role in impeachment. Um, I actually talked to one of Congresswoman Dean's friends and donors, Judy Seldnick, um, who's a businesswoman, and she said she talked to Congresswoman Dean about the Senate race before the impeachment trial and kind of it was encouraging her to think about staying in the House, like reminding her, like, you you like what you do. And she, she told that to Jim as well when he asked her about running for Senate. Uh, you know, you like what you do in the House. You're on the leadership track. You could be there for a long time and really have some real power. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. So, yeah, she's and she's obviously making the rounds now, promoting her book, has a higher profile due to impeachment, and is get building more of a national profile. So we could see her rise through those ranks. Jim, uh, you're uh, you've, you've probably you know been exposed to a number of people in the you know kind of the suburban Philly area. You know, as, as we sort of talked about a little earlier with your your previous role at WHYY. Did you feel like uh, when you when you took a job? Uh, reporting for Congress and uh, and moving to Washington that, you know, maybe you wouldn't be so quickly drawn back into the Philly world. <laughs> yeah, it's been a little interesting to see names like Bruce Castor uh, pop up again. I thought, you know, that guy uh, was going to be a footnote uh, in history and, and now he's, you know, back on uh, 
you know, front pages of uh, all the newspapers. If we, um, we thought that Castor's biggest uh, role might have been just not prosecuting Bill Cosby, but yeah. there he was in the Senate trial, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, yeah, but, you know, Pennsylvania is really exciting right now. There's, uh, like Bridget said, you know, I think we only named half of the Democrats that are thinking about running, and we didn't even talk about the Republicans yet. And so, yeah. <laughs> and there, there are too many. We'd be here all day. This podcast yep. would last three hours. Um, so, yeah, it's it's just a really uh, interesting time. And it's one of the few races uh, in 2022 that the Democrats really see a pickup opportunity uh, in the Senate. Um, and it will probably one of the one of the few races that is going to get the most money and attention uh, in a little bit over two years, uh, less than two years from now. Uh, Jim and Bridget, thanks so much, and uh, we look forward to coming back and, and talking to you about this race a little bit more. Sounds good. Thanks, thanks for Jason. Having us.